Live from New York, it's another episode of No Challenges Remaining, featuring Ben Rothenberg and Courtney Nguyen. <laughs> You're booing yourself, Courtney. I, I always boo myself, Ben. That's, That's psychologically worrying to me. Well, you know, you can be concerned. It's up to you. But I want you to be able to cheer yourself, Courtney. That's our goal for this open. That's my goal for life. Fair. But I'm getting there. It's baby steps. Uh, we it's we baby cheer steps. for you over here at NCR. Oh. And so do our listeners. How, how have you been so far? How's New York treating you? New York is overwhelming. I am from the West Coast, born and raised. In the playground is where I spent most of my days. I could keep going, but I won't. You're like a reverse Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. I'm reverse Fresh Prince. And I have always known this since I came to New York for the very first time, which is I am too soft for New York. And it took me a while to kind of accept that because I tried to be like, no, but I'm not. But no, New York kind of chews me up and spits me out. You don't feel like you walk down the streets and the big lights will inspire you? No, concrete jungle, wet dream tomatoes don't work. <laughs> Doesn't work at don't all. Don't work at all. No. Yeah, so it's, uh, you know, which is dis- disconcerting because it's only Sunday and the tournament has yet to begin. Um, Long road ahead. Yeah, but it's just, it's the crowds, it's the noise, it's the smells, it's all of it. It's just a lot of, of stimuli, yes, stimuli, stimuli, stimuli for this introvert to kind of deal with on a second-by-second basis. Well, hopefully the rest of the way, we're recording this on the eve of the tournament, hopefully more of our time now will be spent in flushing, which is fairly sterile by New York standards, at least. There aren't too many weird flushing smells. As the name would suggest, there might be, but there aren't. So, yeah, so we're going to enjoy that on this show. We're going to talk about all sorts of fun U.S. Open-type topics. Federer, Serena, Sharapova, Novak, Julia Cohen, all the greats. So let's just start rocking and rolling, shall we? So, last show we started by talking about Maria Sharapova breaking up with Jimmy Connors. This show, we're starting with Maria Sharapova again, as she pulled out of the U.S. Open with a shoulder injury, what has been termed right shoulder bursitis. Courtney, what do you make of the newsworthy Pova this summer? And we actually have a question that relates to that from... Rebecca Grasby, one of our listeners, who asks us, do you think that Sharapova's shoulder injury goes some way to explaining her rather out-of-character behavior this summer? So what do you think it means for Maria Sugarpova, not really her real name, but reported to be? <laughs> reported to be. Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, it's been an interesting seven days, you know, because you've had this span of time where Maria Sharapova has not swung a racket. She hasn't hit a ball in competitive She practiced. Anything. She practiced. But she's been dominating the headlines for the past week for a variety of different reasons. Some of them manufactured by her, some of them not manufactured by her, et cetera, et cetera. But, I mean, do I think that it explains kind of her... I mean, I presume that the question is is referring to a bit of her kind of catty behavior. I mean, I presume that it's referring to Wimbledon. Oh, interesting. Okay. Uh, That's what I was kind of thinking. I do include Wimbledon in her bizarre summer. When I wrote up the story about her pulling out, it was sort of a summary of... Maria Sharapova has been weird lately, and that definitely fits in there. I I think it's just kind of gotten weirder and weirder by the day, though. Yeah, I mean, I think that there is a part of it. I mean, one thing that we can't underestimate with respect to Maria Sharapova and Team Sharapova is the brand Sharapova and how much the brand is as much an entity in and of itself that is separate from her tennis. Mm -hmm. And so I think to the extent that she kind of believed or kind of had a sense that her shoulder was going to give her any issues or even the thought of like, maybe I can't play the open. Maybe I can't play all summer. 
you know, all these sorts of things, pulling out of tournaments and things like that, there is kind of that other side of the Sharapova.co that still had to keep Sharapova relevant. Sharapova.co, is she a UK address? Sorry, not .co, sorry. Sharapova, like, CO. Incorporated. I yeah. want to say incorporated, but I just wanted to go co, but okay. in my head, visually. Yeah, Sharapova Incorporated. That she still had to stay relevant. Yeah. She still had to stay in the headlines. This That's is not like, normally her move, though. It's not, but I don't know. I mean, I think in some ways it foreshadows a potential shutdown for the rest of the season. Yeah. In which case, it, it means that she's not really relevant or grabbing headlines anywhere. And, you know, right now, especially, you know, she's U.S.-based and all, a lot of her companies have a huge U.S. imprint in terms of her, her sponsorship reach, that some of these stories you kind of feel like, you know, they, they were kind of drummed up to make sure that her sponsors or her name, and thereby her sponsors, kind of still got some play, despite the fact that she's just not going to play a match in New York. Yeah. And one of the things that I, one of the interesting headlines that I read within the last day was on, I think it was Business Week. It was either Business Week or Bloomberg. That was like, if you didn't know what Sugar Pova was before, you know what it is now. Which is the whole point of the stunt. And, the and stunt, that's the whole point of the stunt. The stunt, I thought, we were when we first heard about it, we thought it was ridiculous. We and were complete, in a car. We thought it was completely implausible. <laughs> and just, yeah, it was right after we finished recording the show, I yeah. guess. And we were just both, like, we refused, neither of us commented on it. Nope. Everybody else was, like, blowing up and, like, cracking jokes and retweeting it. And I think... And what and what you should learn from that, folks, for future, <laughs> for future reference, is to listen to our silence. Like, if we're not tweeting about something, odds are... We are on, we're on Twitter all the time. We read just about everything. If we're not saying something, it's because we don't buy it. <laughs> yeah, pretty so, much. I mean, so, yeah. and, and that's not just, be, I mean, part of that is gut instinct, and part of that is also just, you know, immediately from hearing the news, just kind of like reaching out to the people that I know and, and the contacts that I have and, and having almost universally everybody coming back to me being like, it's bullshit. Yeah, and I, and I went out and looked up Florida State naming mm-hmm. statutes, which was pretty easy to find on Google. It made it clear that she had to go down to a local court and get fingerprinted to have yeah. this happen. Well, the issue was that, and even like for me, because I was a lawyer, and I, I think I was talking to you about this or somebody else, where I was just like, they were announcing this, and it, the paperwork hadn't even been filed. Like, the way that it was reported was, oh, she's thinking about it. And that came out on Monday, with the tournament starting seven days yeah, later. No. There is no way in seven days, I don't care how crazy and screwed up the state of Florida is in terms of the legal process, no. but there was no way that she could go down, get fingerprinted, submit the paperwork, and the reason why the fingerprints get taken is because there's a background check, a criminal background check that is done. So that takes, like, you know, a lot of times a week if at a minimum. Sure. And then on top of that, once the background check is done, then you schedule your court hearing, and th- which could be another week out, could be two days, whatever. There was no way it was going to happen. There was just no logistical way. So the whole thing was a little bit, I wouldn't say quirky, I would just say ridiculous. <laughs> It was silly. It was silly. Slightly sour. And not very sporty. <laughs> I don't know where... High five. High five. High five. That was not my best work, but there's a limited <laughs> number of adjectives to choose from there. All right. So that was Sharapova. Do I think that the injury explains some of her weird behavior? Maybe. It's just been a weird few months for her, and maybe we'll find out more about it later. I mean, this shoulder injury, Matt Cronin reported with more clear sourcing and more believably, was that she'd been having injections in her shoulder to deal with the pain before. She hadn't talked about that at all. Obviously, she's not going to bring it up. Is it worrying for for shoulder pova? (laughs) Better name change. Yes. Of course. I mean... Considering that she she's obviously had these problems before. And New sugar poet flavor, chronic. Chronic. Uh, oh. Now, <laughs> a little, wonder, a little now, racy. I'm, now I'm wondering what's inside that bag. Yeah, a little race sales. I'll tell you that. <laughs> exactly, for sure. But yeah, no, it's definitely worrying. You know, if I'm if I'm Sharapova, you know, you're number three in the rankings. You have no shot at number one. 
There's nothing after this. You shut it down. Shut it down. Maybe I don't see. I don't if see. You're feeling, if you're feeling great in Istanbul, maybe Istanbul. Maybe Istanbul. There's a lot of points in Istanbul. But here's the thing about Istanbul, which is my argument, because I know that like obviously WTA will go out of their way to try and obviously make sure that she's there because they need you know everybody there. In sure. Their camps. But this is the third and final year of Istanbul. It moves to Singapore. She doesn't actually need to be there. Like, what was important was that she was there the first year, which yeah. is when she had her bum ankle, and she played and then she had to withdraw. But, like, that was, like, I'm sure getting her to go there. I mean, she was dating Sasha at the time, so maybe it wasn't, like, totally twisting of the arm. But it made sense because it was the first year in Istanbul, and you had to make a good impression. You had to prove the value of yeah. your tournament and things like that. Now this is the third year. It's cut and run time. You really actually don't necessarily have to deliver. I think if she's feeling up to it, she should go, because you get a lot of points there, even for losing. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't know. I mean, it's, and obviously she's not too worried about points. If, if she falls to number six, she don't care. Uh, I think that she should be concerned about falling out of top four. To get three and a quarter? Yeah. That'd be bad. That'd be bad news for her. <laughs> you know, yeah, I think that for Maria, it's important for her to stay top four or top two. Yeah. Three to four doesn't matter. You know, I mean, but to stay just basically... You know, so that she has her own quarter at slams, and then to stay on the opposite side of Serena. Those are kind of the important things for her, for sure, no? Those are indeed. Let's talk about Serena briefly. Serena just was wielding a flamethrower in the video music awards on MTV we were watching, which I don't really want to discuss anymore, because I just, <laughs> I saw a lot of things that I just, I'd rather pretend didn't happen. Looking at you, Miley. Miley Cyrus. <laughs> Eat a sandwich. Is that your issue with Miley Cyrus? The no, skinniness? that's not my issue at all. That was like number but twenty I on her list of say issues. Other there. things, but they didn't actually go with the rhythm of my chant. That's true. So, Starhead candle. <laughs> Starhead candle. Sorry. Who does she have in the draw? Starhead. Do we know? I don't even recall seeing her in the draw. To be quite we're, honest, we're clearly pretty bad Starhead fans. We are. Yeah. So Serena, we were talking about Serena earlier. There's a lot of talk about Serena and her dissatisfaction with her year. Courtney, do you think if Serena Williams does not win the U.S. Open this year, has been a bust? I would say no. Okay. But I also don't know if that's what Serena would think. So it's two kind of different things, no. you know I mean? I think that had, I mean, obviously she, if she doesn't win the Open, she would have finished with just one slam. But it's now, the one slam the, she wanted. Exactly right. Like, if it was like the Aussie or Wimbledon, then I'd be like, yeah, kind of a bust. But it was the French. So that's kind of, you know, the, that was the brass ring really for a while now to, to get that second French Open title. So I don't know. I mean, I don't, I don't think it's a bust. I mean, I think it's not like her greatest year. I think that the season was kind of building to kind of be potentially her greatest year. So, yeah. You know, since, since what, it was 03? Yeah. 03. And so, it still could be by some metrics. I mean, she's more than likely going to finish the year number one. She is more than likely going to have the most titles ever in her career. She only needs one more there. If she, I'm guessing she's going to play one of the Asian tournaments this year, based on how she's going. She seems pretty healthy and playing a pretty full schedule. Winning the French was big. I see why her all her hopes were set on that. She just had a weird loss at Wimbledon to Lissicky. That was uncharacteristic. Yeah, it's tough. I think that Australia, she had bad luck. But yeah, I agree. I think if for I was her, I'd put the sort of par for the year at two. Yeah. So I think that it's a bogey if she gets one. It's a it's a good bogey. You know, one of those ones yeah, where yeah, like, oh, exactly, right. you made some good shots at the end to win the French. Good bogey. But it's not ideal. And I, I, yeah, that's what, those are the standards she set for herself. It's the same thing Federer used to say about himself when he would only win, like, one slam or something. He sort of created a monster. But I feel like Serena embraces the monster more than Federer did. I think Serena's like, no, these are my standards more than Federer was. Federer, yes. Federer used to be like, wait, guys, let's chill out. Down. Yeah, exactly. Serena doesn't talk herself down that it's much. It's like the whole thing. It's like, 
when Federer lost in the second round to Stokowski at Wimbledon. I mean, he like chastised the media for like, how dare you predict I'm going to make the quarterfinals? I'm going to make the quarterfinals, even though I've made 36 quarters straight quarterfinals. Like, how you you guys are dumb. I'm like, seriously, like there's been a lot of crazy shit said this year by many many people. We're talking about Maria, about Serena, Sloan, about Serena, like crazy, crazy things. That quote, still to me, like is the quote of the year <laughs> because I find it so incredibly ridiculous, an incredibly ridiculous thing to say. Speaking of Serena and how she sets expectations, what do you make of her always talking up Sloan? <laughs> When Serena lost to Wimbledon. Hold on, before you continue, I just want to let you know, Ben. Uh huh. It is an honor to listen to you speak. Your voice is so smooth, and it just blows me away. It's Thank you. It's an absolute honor. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. What do you make of, of Serena <laughs> saying when she lost to Wimbledon, oh, I think Sloane's going to win now, and just saying such good things about Sloane all the time? Because I wrote it in a story, I think it got cut, but it, sa- it said it sounded as much like a blessing as a curse when she said that. And when the draw came out, Serena and Sloan fourth round. There were some gasps. I was excited. What do <laughs> yeah. you think of all of that? I mean, I think that uh, Serena, I mean, most of the top players have this incredible ability to say certain things that when they get translated into black and white, don't really look all that, they're like, okay. But if you're in the press conferences with them numerous times, you begin to sense a pattern and you see their facial expressions. And sometimes they're saying things, not even with a literal eye roll, but with a, you know I'm eye-rolling while I'm saying this with a complete straight face look. and that's I'm staring what, right at you. I'm, exactly. Yeah. I'm looking dead at you, and I'm just, like, saying it, and you're laughing, and I'm looking at you with a complete straight face. You're like, laughing on my behalf, exactly. basically. Yeah. And, and I feel like, I mean, obviously, I think that that's a, been a bit of an MO with Serena with respect to how she speaks about opponents. I mean, I still remember last year at Stanford, because both she and Sharapova were playing Stanford that year, and Serena, like, people were asking her about Sharapova, and she's like, oh my gosh, it was so great seeing her at the ESPYs, and she looked awesome, and it was like this, such a hollow, and like, she was saying the words, and they were very nice, but you also were kind of looking at her, and you're kind of like, you are totally FOS right now, like, you are so full of it, like, I can't even deal, and so with the Sloan stuff, it's a lot of that, of kind of like, yeah, you know what, go ahead and go write your articles, because now I'm giving you this quote about how amazing Sloane is. So go write those articles, writers. Go write that Serena Williams thinks that Sloane Stevens is the next big thing, and that it's an honor to watch her play tennis. And put that pressure on that kid's shoulders, and let's see how that works out. It's incredible. I love it. It's pretty great. It's Machiavelli. I mean, it's just, it's. I love just all of this. Like, the WTA should be like this, It though. should be. We were talking about this the other day, about like rivalries, and like kind of what makes good rivalries and things like that. And a lot of it is open animosity. Can I change my vote? I think Sloan Serena is the best rivalry we have right now. That might be right. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I think that's probably right. Had I thought about it. So I really hope they play in the fourth round. Jamie Hampton could beat Sloan. That's the scenario I see happening, actually. I see Jamie beating Sloan, or at least least coming close to beating Sloan, and then Jamie pushing Serena, but losing. I kind of love the idea of, like, everybody banking on Serena Sloan and Jamie Hampton in her compression shorts beating Sloan. (laughs) And, like, everybody's like, wah, wah. And Jamie's like, Shrug. (laughs) That would be amazing. (laughs) So while I think we agree that Serena is the favorite on the women's side, of course, if she gets by Sloane slash Jamie Hampton, there's a lot more debate over who 
should be expected to win on the men's side. So let's talk about that. Courtney, who do you expect to win on the men's side? My favorite for the tournament is Rafa. Okay. I think that I have admittedly, I think if you read what I've written about Rafa since he's returned and also just maybe even some comments on the podcast, I think that generally speaking, I've been very cautious about his comeback and, and very conservative about what the expectations are, you know, after the seven month layoff and things like that. And I just was incredibly impressed by his run through Montreal and Cincinnati. I thought, I mean, obviously, you know, it wasn't a situation where kind of like a Serena where, assuming Serena would have won Cincinnati, but where Serena was winning these tournaments, these big tournaments, but she wasn't really beating anyone of note. Now, Serena know? was being a little bit of a vulture. Yeah, she was vulturing a little bit. And with Rafa, you can't really say that. No. You know, I mean, the win over Djokovic was huge. I think that that proved a lot of things and showed a lot. I mean, it showed a lot about Nadal's confidence it showed a lot about Djokovic's lack of confidence. Yeah. I would have um, loved to have seen Murray on Nadal's side of the draw at this tournament. Yeah, I re- that's a matchup we need to see. We haven't seen it yet this we whole year. Since 2011, I don't think we've seen yeah, it. we have so, not yeah. seen it. By the way, that question about who was the favorite was from Masha, second serve. Just to get the listener the due shout out for the idea. Woo-hoo. Thanks, Masha, second serve. So, yeah. So, I would agree with that, I think, Nadal. But the thing with Nadal... As long as he gets past, like, the first round. And I realize the first round is Ryan Harrison. But he had such an unpredicted flame-out at Wimbledon that came out of nowhere. It was just a thud that if his knees suddenly are overwrought, which I don't think there are signs that they are from what he's been practicing and the way he's been playing the last few weeks. Once he gets past, like, round one, round two, then I'm willing to make him the favorite. But in terms of early upset victim, I also think he's the least certain starter out of the blocks of the big three. I mean, here's a question for you that I have that's somewhat related to what you just said. Okay. I mean, it is related to what you said. But Hopefully anyways. good. Yeah. But I get, because I generally, at least with on um, SI, I write a lot of stories over the course of, well, since Rafa came back in February, a lot of kind of like knee update stories. Like, here's what Rafa says is the status of his knee, or Rafa says he doesn't want to talk about his knees, or, uh-huh. you know, whatever. But just kind of monitoring his physical health. Yeah. Going into tournaments. I get a lot of tweets and emails from people who say your focus on Rafa's injuries is an attempt to kind of like ex- like build in an excuse to when he loses like your focus like oh of course like like journalists need to stop i get i get blatantly like literally tweets like this you guys need to stop focusing on his knees why and these are this is coming from non Rafa fans well, obviously, yeah. Okay. They're coming from people who want, yeah, who want Rafa to be treated, or want Rafa to be set up to, I don't know. I don't, I don't know, know what they I, want. I, I, this is what I'm asking, though. Like, I don't really get it, but do you think that that's right? Like, do you think that, like, we should just, is it to the point where we should just say, give, especially given his year, nine titles, you know, French Open champ, undefeated on hard courts, that we should stop being concerned about Rafa's health. Okay, here's the thing. I think it's fair to stop talking about how remarkable it was that he was out for seven months and then did this. I think the statute of limitations on that narrative is done. I do think, however, you can include something saying his knees are unpredictable. He clearly was hampered at Wimbledon out of nowhere and went crashing out of that one. Yeah, I, in terms of that, I don't know. There's so many eggshells with Rafa in terms of dealing with how you talk about him. It's just his people, he's one of the definitely, more than anybody else, I think he's the most polarizing player on the men's game. Rafa. Really? I think so. More so than Novak? I think so. Why? I just think he is, because I think Federer fans have, like, a hang-up about Rafa. Well, yeah, I guess it gets kind of like the Federer fan, like the anti-Rafa. It, it, yeah, okay, I can see that. Yeah. Although, I mean, yeah, I guess, no, yeah, okay. That's my thought. I always thought that Novak was the most polarizing. I don't think so. I think, I don't think, like, Federer fans don't care about Novak. That's fair. No, that's so. probably right. Yeah. <laughs> 
speaking of Novak, Courtney, you and I were in a Novak Djokovic press conference at oh the beginning at, at the beginning of the tournament, <laughs> media day. He did his pre-tournament press. Pack a lunch. This was the one of the <laughs> toughest press conferences, I'll be honest, to sit through that I've ever been at. Not because it was awkward, just because for some reason Novak was in an incredibly chatty <laughs> mood and was getting these questions that were fairly straightforward and was just going off. He had one answer. He got asked a question about giving a speech at the UN. And it was a fairly open-ended question in some in some fairness. But his answer probably lasted about six minutes and lasted, I don't know, that I wasn't timing it, but I can tell you, word count, it was 522 words long. <laughs> 522 words about a question about, do you see yourself having a role like representing Serbia or inspiring people in the future? And it just went all over the place. What do we make of Novak Djokovic, the diplomat? slash tennis player at this stage? I mean, I didn't mind it. I mean, I think that I was actually more annoyed by the questions than the actual responses. Like, I, I understood where Novak was coming from. and Okay. No, I really, like, I just, you know, it was, uh, his pre-press came on Saturday. The night before was uh, the ATP Heritage event, the celebration of number ones. Right. And there was, like, three questions about this freaking event that already occurred. Yeah. Meanwhile, he could have a rematch with Andy Murray in the semifinals. He could have to go through Murray and Nadal. And Del Potro. And Del Potro. He just lost to, like, you know, to to Nadal in in Montreal. Like, there's a lot of questions about his kind of play going into the Open, at least from my perspective, in terms of, like, his ability to be clutch. He's not clutch at the moment. I actually think that he's a guy who blinks in the major moments. So there's all these questions about Novak going into the Open, and we're talking about a freaking ATP Heritage event, which was amazing, and I understand that, but it just didn't seem appropriate, and it was coming from reporters who have private access to Novak. In other words, it didn't need to be a question that was asked in general press. I agree with that, but also Novak was also taking those questions and running with them like crazy. Not like you, not like Usain Bolt running, like Mo Farah running. These were no, long distance just, answers that was, were just. It oh, was neat, no one was ending. no one was playing like even you and I. Like I found you in the room, it was like glaring at you, like yeah, what we may is have going shared on? some like Jim Halpert, Pam Beasley looks. I'm just kind of like what, and with Carol Bouchard as well, because Carol had a legitimate question, like a newsworthy question to ask about Voitech feedback. Yeah, yeah, exactly, and and his new partnership with feedback and she couldn't even get it in because he only answered like six questions because yeah. he, he, i mean it was the ultimate display of running out the clock unintentionally like i don't think novak was trying to do it i've seen this happen in other press conferences where players are like i don't want to deal so i'm just going to talk forever to just run out the clock because i know i just have 15 minutes to kill you know who else does that is james blake yes. segue james blake apparently we think it's going to be announcing his retirement tomorrow what do you make of James Blake retiring? Quick segue. Yeah, I mean, about time. Yeah. I think yeah. we alluded to this in our last show. We talked yeah. about big Americans who we thought would be hanging up at the U.S. Open. James Blake was very high on that list of people very, we were alluding high. to. So, yeah, what, do you, what are you going to remember about James Blake, about Jimmy? Probably that? three things. Okay. A, Harvard. B, hit the ball ridiculously hard. Very, very hard ball striker. In a frustrating way. In a way that made you think, like, dude, you could probably, like, actually dial it back, like, by 10% and not miss as much, and you would have a tremendously more, like, accomplished career. That was the thing with James. For being a Harvard guy, he could get set to be such a brainless it ball basher. A, I mean, if you want to talk about brainless ball bashing, James is, like, the guy that pops into my head. Yeah. Of men and women. Yeah. Like, he's, like, I was just like, I don't get it. Um, and then three, incredibly verbose in press conferences, to the point of 
like you just want to walk out in the middle. You could be doing a one-on-one and you want to cut him off. And I never cut off people when I interview them, but he was one where I was He's very, very chatty. He's one of the toughest people for people to transcribe. And obviously, it's not all negative with James. No, no, no. James did did a very good job of making, being one of the best college players to transition to the pros. People talk about Isner, Mm -hmm. but really, Blake's results were way ahead of his. Came in fourth place at the Beijing Olympics. He was one of those guys like Marty. Just kind of hit a little bit of a ceiling. He made Masters finals. He made it in New Wells final. When I say Masters, I also mean, I think he made the Shanghai uh, year-end championships final. So he qualified for that and was a top five guy. He was ahead of Roddick when Roddick was doing well. He had a lot of upside, but yeah, there were just things that just didn't quite click for him. And also, I'll say I was surprised he stayed around as long as he did. I thought he would retire like two years ago. So so it feels like a little bit of a weird time to say goodbye to James Blake because he hasn't been a relevant player for quite a while. He did have a big win over Jerzy Janowicz in Cincinnati a couple weeks ago. So good on you, James. I expect him to do to stay in the sport. I would not be surprised with him being a commentator. He did really well. I know I see that look on your face. <laughs> I'm, but I'm he currently did, shaking my head. But he did really, really well when he was commentating at Davis Cup with in Jacksonville with Brad Haber because I think that he knew that he had a limited amount of time to talk. And it made him so much better and to the point and concise. And I was like why can't we get a shot clock on this guy in press? It really was sort of an interesting experience. So good luck, James. I hope that you get a good run in, I assume he's playing all three events. That's a standard retirement move. So good luck, James. Vaya con Dios. Vaya con Dios, indeed. Speaking of retirement and unretirement, one player who recently unretired, but maybe is wishing she didn't, <laughs> is Martina Hingis. Courtney, I know that you've been fairly harsh on Martina during her comeback, and has maybe been pleased by her failures. What do you make of Martina's comeback so far? I believe she's now 3-4, and four, lost second round in all of San Diego, Toronto, and Cincinnati, and then first round in New Haven. She got put in the U.S. Open draw and drew a Ronnie Vinci first round, which is brutal. In her defense, and she played a Ronnie Vinci in Cincinnati too. What the tiebreak? It was close. It was close. What do you make of Martina Hingis's comeback, and where do you think it goes from here if she does indeed have a first round U.S. Open loss? Here's my thing about Martina Hingis and her comeback. I don't, I don't have a problem with Martina Hingis and her comeback. Great, good for tennis, no problem. But I do kind of react negatively towards this idea that someone can just like be like, "Oh, I'm just gonna come back and like win." And, like, everybody, for whatever reason, like, all the tennis writers and commentators are like, oh, this is huge, like, Martina Hingis is going to come back, and it's great, and she's going to, like, win things. And I'm like, that would just be so bad for the WTA if that were to happen. Really? You think you're one of those people who... Yes. Is, okay. I don't think so. I don't like it. I, I genuinely don't. I don't like this this idea that you can just, like, sweep in and take over things. And I didn't necessarily, not that I didn't understand, I intellectually understood why she got so much attention when the announcement was announced. Other players were talking her up is the thing too. Sure. Yeah. But there are... It wasn't just media. Okay. No, I know. I understand that. There are also players who say Steffi Graf can be a top 10 player today. To which I say, if anybody had to actually play this tour on a week by week basis and grind it out, bullshit. It could a player like go and beat like a top five, top ten player, like a retired player, like Steffi or or Kleisters or Hingis, whatever. Sure, once, maybe twice. Can you do it on a weekly basis? No. You saw how Kleisters ran out of motivation. Exactly. Seen by the end of her second, third career. Yeah, and Hennen came back. It what it didn't really like you know take. No. No. I think that by the way, that question I'm being belated on these questions. That question about Martina was from Daniel Pickwick Tennis. Thank you, Daniel, for your question. Thanks, Pickwick. Yeah, so I do wonder, though, because theorization had been about her 
coming back for singles and doubles. Or, for, sorry, for doubles and then maybe singles. I also think that she just picked the wrong partner in Handikova. I think this was That's not the right person to do it. It was just stylistically for double sense, not a good one to play with. She was like, oh, we played together before. Yeah, if you look back at her results, like Handikova was like her least successful partner ever. And she used to be known for someone who was very, very cutthroat about picking partners. And maybe she lost a little bit of that edge. And she's obviously very nervous out there right now. So, I just think rough there's, draw. there's a lot of... Maybe she'll play mix too, though. Mix might go well. It might, but but I think that there's a lot of naivete... Good word. ...surrounding her comeback. Not just from her, and not just from her colleagues, mm-hmm. but also from other writers who have covered it. I just think that, like... It doesn't. It just doesn't work that way, especially when you're coming back in doubles. I mean, even in singles, I would give her maybe a better chance than doubles. Doubles are you're, there's so many variables. Margins are so small. This margins Coin are so flip, small. Yeah. She hasn't won back to back matches in doubles in her entire comeback. That's not great. You know, I mean, people were talking about it like she was going to go and win things. You know, and then so and now she's got this this rough draw at the U.S. Open. So in other words, like I don't mind if if Martina Hingis does well. I like her game. I would love to see her play more. And it's great. But there is a part of me that's just kind of like you know, just because you can beat players ranked out of the top fifty in a five game set in world team tennis, does not mean that you can come to the onto the WTA tour and win matches. And that's where I think for me being kind of a WTA fan and really kind of respecting what those women do on a week in and week out basis, that's where it kind of like rubs me the wrong way. Okay. I do think I do think in singles her actually she was probably better in singles in World of Tennis than she was in doubles. And she had an okay partner better than okay in uh, Anastasia Rodanova with the castle. So I think that yeah, she beat Jeannie Bouchard like 5-1. I think in singles, she would be winning more matches, getting a little bit deeper, maybe not winning tournaments, and it's probably more humiliating to lose in singles than in doubles, I think it's fair to say. In doubles, you can blame it on the skinny girl. Singles, you can't do that. Yeah, I, don't and know. I would love to see her on the singles I do too. That's what's I relevant. I absolutely love it. I would love to see how that would play out. Yeah. No doubt. That's what make it happen. I hope, I hope she keeps trying. I hope she doesn't give up. Yeah. <laughs> I'm agnostic on it. <laughs> Speaking of people trying new things, we got a question from Curtis about Anna Ivanovich joining Twitter. Curtis says, so far, she's been a much love, better tweeter. All, I love how you refer to Curtis as though everyone knows who Curtis is. You don't even refer to him by his handle. Sorry, Curtis, Curtis07. Curtos. Curtos, whose picture on Twitter is a picture of Anna Ivanovich. She's a bit of a fan. He says, Curtos, Curtis, says, so far, she's been a much better tweeter than I thought she would be. Her personality shows. Courtney, I know you've said before that you thought Anna Ivanovich is one of the players who should not join Twitter. She is now the 18th member of the top 20 on Twitter. Twitter is nearly universal. What do you make of Anna joining on and what she's done so far? So long as she's tweeting and not reading her mentions, I don't have a problem with it. The yeah. issue is the mentions. And you were telling me actually about a thing they have now for like celebrities or highly followed people that can sort of be a safeguard for that. So why don't you explain yeah, that? I think no, that's interesting. I'd heard this from a player that, you know, has a lot of followers. Basically, they're, they don't have, they can obviously read their mentions if they want to. Yeah. But they don't actually have to. And that if a, a tweeter who has more than X number of followers tweets at them, that Twitter actually sends them an email. They can get an alert. They can set a limit. Like if anyone more than like 10,000 followers tweets me or something. So that you don't miss like the celebrity tweeters or like something major, right? That's why like, for example, Anna saw that Rafa tweeted at her. There you go. Yeah. You know, so that that's part of it. So you can kind of have that where you don't get the 256 betters, trolls who are tweeting at somebody incessantly. FYI trolls, 
not all those people are actually reading your tweets because Twitter doesn't alert them if they happen. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, it, it, it has to be, a, you know, players of a certain status, you know, to kind of avail themselves of that option. By but, the way, when we say Rafa tweeting, we mean Benito, FYI. Yes. Rafa's Twitter's been weird lately. It's been weirdly detached from yes. being a human. It was. But Anna don't know. Anna was like, oh, cool, Anna Rafa. Anna was like, okay, Rafa. But yeah, no, I think that she's been really good. I think that one thing that Anna has definitely learned very quickly and is really keyed in on is that people don't give a crap what you have to say. Just tweet selfies. Yeah. <laughs> Her first photo was Her a first winking photo was selfie. phenomenal. Yeah. Like, I mean, is there was there any better debut to Twitter than Anna's? I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> Tremendous. I don't really know that much about Twitter debuts, so I'm going to No, but I mean, like, you know, like, Roger had his selfie. I think Maria maybe just sent a tweet. It wasn't with a picture. Oh, no, I'm going to argue Burditch. There's something about being, like, Bird is here. No. Bird is here versus a winking selfie of Anna Ivanovich. And no. Fair. Let's talk briefly about the qualifying draw that we were here for. I don't think either you or I, Courtney, got to watch a ton of the qualifying matches. But one that we watched before we got up here featured uh, Tadia Majerik against our own American, Julia Cohen. And we were watching this on the CBS Sports Network. It was nationally televised. Courtney, explain to me what you saw in this match and why you'll never forget it. I couldn't if I tried, Ben. It was horrible. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like scarred. I genuinely don't understand what any of that was. I mean, I think that we clicked over to it after watching the 99ers. Yep. 30 for 30 on the Women's National. How did you feel about that, by the way? I thought it was fine. I thought it was a little bit too soft-focused, weirdly Barbara Walters-y, like a little too Martina Chris. Yeah. As opposed to like kind of the more hard-hitting 30 for 30 documentaries, but it was worth watching. It was, I don't know if people follow me, they probably know, but it was, I was at the Women's World Cup at 99 at the Rose Bowl, and it was still, to this day, the greatest sporting experience I've ever been a part of, so it was tremendous, and it holds a very dear and near place in my heart. Yeah. But, so to go from that, which was a celebration of, like... One of the greatest feats in women's sports, by Americans. By Americans. So that match... The Julia Cohen... Was shocking. Julia Cohen, for those who might not be familiar with her, is an American journeywoman... I think it's fair to say. Definition of. Definition of. Julie Cohen goes on journeys. She plays some of the most obscure tournaments in the world. She flies all around the world to various 25Ks. She gets on some weird entry lists. Made the final in Baku last year, which got her up into the top 100 for the first time. Julia Cohen, if you think Caroline Wozniak is a moonballer, you should just see Julia Cohen. And she has this way of bringing players down to her level <laughs> that is remarkable. And clearly, Tadia Majerik is not someone who normally plays that kind of tennis, but she got sucked into it, and she looked just shocked. There was a, there was a screenshot of her, just like at a changeover, <laughs> looking like shell-shocked, and like she's seeing her family being murdered. And that's what it looks like when you're playing Julia Cohen, because these rallies went on so long that CBS Sports Network had a clock going in the bottom corner of the screen to show you how long they were. And they would go like one, tw- 1 minute 29, one was like one forty something. That's like the amount of time games usually take. And these were points. 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 Yeah, no, I mean, it was shocking to watch. I mean, I will admit, I had never really seen, I've never watched Julia Cohen play live. Mm. That was really my first exposure to her. Mm. And when we clicked over, I think Ben can attest to this, the first words out of my mouth was, why is the ball going so slow? <laughs> yeah. No, it's weird because they credit CBS Sports Network. They televise qualities, and that's cool. Awesome. But Julie Cohen is not ready for primetime. No. No. And yet, 
There she was. <laughs> it was remarkable. What we're saying, basically, if you have a chance to watch Julia Cohen, do so. And to her credit, she won. She did win. With, like, kind of a tremendous rally, like, on match point. It lasted, like, for about 28 minutes. She, like, collapsed to the ground. She collapsed to the ground, and she, like, hit, like, a backhand winner to win the match. That's a, actually, what's surprising. A lot of the points were ending in winners. Yeah, they were. I mean, it wasn't really ending in, in errors, but that, a lot of that goes with the fact that they were hitting the ball about 15 miles an hour. Right. So it was, like, kind of like... not watching, really running, either. No. So it was kind of like watching, like, a club match... I don't know. It was horrifying. That's, I just, I'm sorry to all the really diehard Julia Cohen fans and people who love qualities, but that was one of those matches where I was just like, the WTA needs to bury this because it was not good. Julia Cohen got knocked out in the final round of qualifying by Camilla Giorgi. 6-1-6 love. Rest in peace, Julia Cohen. 2013 U.S. Open. You were credit. She, she, she maxed it out. She was on court for like six, seven hours. Yeah. She Total. Got her, got her money's qualities. worth. Got her money's worth. So, you know, she's not going to cheat you. No. Unless it's the final round of qualities. But first or second round, definitely. Absolutely. So, Courtney, what are the storylines you're most looking forward to in the first week of this tournament? Gosh. First week of the tournament. I mean, I think that, you know, obviously we already talked about James Blake and, and, and kind of his uh, assumed retirement. Yep. I'm kind of looking forward, weirdly, or not weirdly, if you follow me on this podcast and also on Twitter... To the Monica Puig story. Yeah. I'm super stoked to see if, like, the Puerto Ricans legit show up. She thinks they will. She thinks they will. No, she's told me explicitly, like, that the entire country of Puerto Rico <laughs> is going to show up at this match. They will take the seven train out to Flushing, yes. and they will be there. And that Ricky Martin will be holding up a Puerto Rican flag which her, with her face on it. And J-Lo will be performing the national anthem. Obviously. Obviously. I'm just kind of stoked to see if that actually happens. I mean, she opens up against Alyssa Klebanova. Tough opener. Which is a tough opener and also kind of, like, weird. Because it's like, how can you really get super psyched about beating a cancer survivor? I mean, Not I, ideal. It's not, like, super. But if she wins, then she will play the winner of Yelena Yankovic and Madison Keys. Which will be on a big court. And which will be on a... a, a Either way. You know. Way. But either of those matches... Would be incredible. Yeah. Her versus Madison on home soil for Madison. Their French Open match was incredible. Yeah. In terms of the drama of it. it. There was so much drama, and Madison like was in absolute tears afterwards, because as we've said before, there's a different dynamic that occurs when players play players that they know from juniors. Yeah. And Monica Puig in particular seems to bring out a certain something with respect to her colleagues. I would agree with that. Right? So, and her cohort. And yeah. her cohorts, yeah. So, like, with the... You know, like, Ben and I both watched a bit of, of her match against Jeannie Bouchard uh, in the first round of Cincinnati, which wasn't televised, which was amazing. Yeah. It was awesome. Like, there were glares. There was, like, more kind of pissiness from both sides as to how the match was going. It was great. And I think Sloane Stevens said this um, in Cincinnati, that, like, she's more inclined to pay attention to a match that involves, like, players she played against in juniors. And she was kind of like, like, Kuznetsova, like, uh, Kuznetsova Stozer, I kind of don't care. Puig Bouchard, I will be there. Yeah, she was like, I'm going to watch on TV. And we were like, it's not on TV. And she's like, well, then I'll stream it. Like, it, it was incredible. Like, it was really interesting to kind of hear somebody actually finally admit that. Because I feel like a lot of the players want to kind of have this aura of, oh, I don't care. I'm only about myself. Yeah, like, whatever. Like... But to hear somebody finally say, like, yeah, you know what? It's totally different. And, like, in that same vein, Jeannie Bouchard opens up against Carolina Pliskova. Good job with knowing the draw. Way yeah. to go. So that's also kind of like a match to watch. 
for no other reason, it's not significant to the draw, but for no other reason than as a standalone tennis match, that will be good. Looking at the draw, I think Jeannie could actually make the quarters. She's in a nice section of the draw. If she beats Ka Pliskova, as she's listed on this draw, she gets Kerber, winnable. Winnable. Then she gets Kanepi or Vogele, winnable. Then she gets whoever comes out of the Flipkins, Venus, Juarez section, winnable. Yeah. Jeannie could pick quarters, yeah. She could. She could. And that'd be great. I mean, I think that generally speaking, what I want to see is like young blood in the second week. Yeah. I don't want to see kind of the same names. It's, it's you know, he gets a bit exhausted. I mean, from my perspective of being somebody who has to write about this like five or six times a day, like it gets a bit exhausting to like week after week or slam after slam to kind of have to recycle stories. And you don't want to do that. And so you want to see the fresh names, new faces, and you want to also introduce those faces. Like we, I mean, those of us in like the tennis cognoscenti, whichever that, whatever that means, yeah. like know Jeannie Bouchard. Yeah. But we want more people to know Jeannie Bouchard and, and a Monica Puig or, you know, obviously Sloan and, and Laura and Madison have a bit of a bigger profile, but even like a, you know, Jamie Hampton or, you know, whoever it is. Like you want those stories to kind of get an opportunity to be told and you can't tell them if they lose. So we have a question from Mark Harrington, M. Harrington, who asks us, who is the best non-seeded player that can make a run in each draw? So that kind of goes to that question that you just asked. Like, who are the players who can become things during this tournament? I just named Jeannie. I like her draw. I'll stick with Jeannie. I think Jeannie has a pretty good chance of doing big things. If she gets past Kerber, I mean, Kerber is a big blocker in the second round. But if she gets past that, Kerber has been off lately. Winnable match for her. That's probably my pick. And then on the men's side, on the men's side, my pick to make the second week who's surprising is Marinko Matasevich. I realize that he's... That's a good choice. I realize that he's never made, won a Grand Slam match in his career, which is surprising. He's like 0-11. But he starts with Robredo, which is a tough opener, but after that, things get real easy for him. He could get Hassler, Dancevic, and then one of Nishikori, Evans, Tomic, or Ramos. I like his chances to make the second week and then maybe get Federer and lose that one. But yeah, so my pick is Matasevich to make the second week as an unseated. Genie and Marinko. Courtney, how about you? Who you got? So for me, I think I totally can absolutely buy into what you're selling in terms of Bouchard. I think that her draw is quite nice, which yeah. is good. For, so if, if not Bouchard, I'm actually going to go Pekovic, which is like a bit of a safe pick because we all know kind of how good Andrea can be. She's, um, got, a, she's got a not easy draw, though. You know, I think that if she just gets past, I mean, she could get Kvitova in the second round. Yeah. I mean, and Jovanovski first round is not a gimme either. It's not a gimme, but I don't think Jovanovski's playing that well. And I think that Kvitova could give her a run, but, you know, obviously we all know Petra's playing well. She could freaking bust through the draw, but up and down and, yeah. and things like that. And the rest and, of that eighth of the draw is nice. Exactly. So if she can get through her first two rounds, I think she's she's in a pretty good spot. Um, so so I'll, I'll go with, with Pekovic on the women's side. Okay. And on the men's side, I'm going Guy Omofis. Okay. Even um, with his injury in Winston-Salem. Yeah. Even with it, I think that he can do some damage, and he just really has to get through the first couple of rounds. And if he does that, in that section of the draw with uh, Isner and everything, like, obviously, like, he's not going to get super deep because he could he could meet Rafa in the fourth round. But a fourth round for Gael Monfils at the U.S. hard courts is doable. I mean, he'd have to beat Unger in the first round, possibly Isner in the second round, third round, Cole Schreiber, Cole Schreiber maybe. Yeah. You know, it's not easy, but, I mean, for him to be able to make the fourth would be pretty good. It would be pretty good. I think, yeah, he definitely had a quietly good week. People weren't really noticing him winning right. in Winston-Salem. He's had a weird summer guy, though, because he played really well in Halle and then skipped Wimbledon for personal reasons. Who plays Halle if they know they're not going to play Wimbledon? It was a weird sort of situation. Guy 
that's pretty much the answer to that question. Yeah, so it's an interesting person for you to stake your hopes on. So I hope that I hope that he does well because he's obviously I a mean, fun to, guy to watch. And to be fair, like honestly, like having clicked through the draw, there's not a lot of great unseated players. No, I would agree with that. Especially nowadays, now that like I mean, in particular, for a long time we've always kind of considered like a Golbis as being like a dangerous and now he's barely seated. Yeah, exactly. So it, it's hard. Like even on the women's side. You know, I, I I would be inclined to kind of pick a Jamie Hampton, for example, who's who's played Sloan in the third round, but she's seated. So, you know, it's a bit different. Let's expand it a little bit with a different question we got from Zachary Hertz via email. You can always email us, by the we way, have an email address. at no challenges remaining at gmail.com. Zachary Hertz asks us, if you had to pick someone outside the current top ten to win the tournament, not just make a nice run, but to win the tournament. the tournament. Yeah. Who would you be? Who would it be, men and women? So I have my I have my, my, my picks. Go for it. Okay. So on the men's side, I'm probably gonna go with Isner. Okay, my pick too. I mean, I think that that he has a he has a I mean he has a good a shot as anybody else of beating Rafa. You know, two tiebreak sets yeah. at Cincinnati plus a five setter at the French in their previous match before that. Like he's shown that that he's in Rafa's head as well in the way that Rafa talks about him. And we'll get to the third quarter later, but that fourth quarter is nice because if you make it out of that third quarter, you're gonna get a soft semifinal opponent. Yeah. You know that. I would agree with Isner. Other people, I'm looking at the draw. I mean, someone like a Kevin Anderson, I don't yeah. think is an completely like wouldn't shock me ridiculous winner. Wouldn't yeah. shock me. So if we're talking again, because the men's side hasn't gone Bartoli in forever, right? But if it did, those on these courts are good guys to bet on. And on the women's side, so if on the women's side for outside the top ten, I'm going to go right to number eleven and pick Sam Soser, the 2011 champ. I really like her draw. Mm-hmm. She has Victoria Duval early, and then Sanchez, Hentikova, Petrova. Petrova's been a top opponent for her historically, but she's playing awful this year. Yeah, I'd pick Sam Stoser. How about you, Courtney? I would probably go the same way. That's really kind of the money bet if somebody outside of the top ten. Um, Sloan, know, I don't think Sloan it's impossible. Sloan is not impossible. Sloan is not impossible. That's the second pick that I would, the second name that kind of stuck out. But My second pick, actually, ahead of Sloan, is Simona Halep. Simona Halep has been money this summer. She's played crap at slams. Yeah, I don't think that has to be a thing that keeps she going now. She played great on clay, and then she, like, crashed out the French. Who she lose to the French? But I know she lost to, at Wimbledon, she lost to Lena, which is legit. Yeah. She lost Navarro. to Suarez Navarro at the French, which is a decent loss on clay. Yeah. Anyway, I think Simona Halep, again, I don't expect her to actually win, but I think if someone's going to have an electrifying run, she's someone who comes in with a lot of momentum. Too, too tired. Okay, fair. Too tired. She's got a lot of Italian food in her low lately. That's exactly right. Our last question of this show comes from Speeds, whose username is at Hockey Symposium, who asks us, how do you see the men's third quarter of the draw playing out? Seems like a pretty big opportunity for Ronich or Janowitz. And I will say, this is the nightmare we all predicted could happen when the draw was being made, a quarter that was anchored by David Ferrer, who's not exactly a threat to win the title. He needs to stop. He needs to stop being a high seed. It doesn't he work. And like, if you were to swap Ferrer for Burdick, we're talking one spot in the rankings it would actually be pretty balanced because i think yeah. Burdick is an absolute like understandable choice to win this title yeah he's like him and del potro like either one of those guys out, put them in at four and this draw is completely balanced there's genuine storylines in every single quarter but the fact that ferrer is there and he's played absolutely horribly through the hardcourt season and gasquet gasquet is not uh, made Gas- For rare Gasquet, have fun with that ATP equal prize money hashtag. <laughs> Gasquet <laughs> has not made a slam quarterfinal, which he's seated to do. He's not made a slam quarterfinal since Wimbledon 2007. Seven! That's a long time ago. That's six years ago. That's like before Laura Robson was born. <laughs> 
So yeah, so I think that's terrible. That's not good with math, but yeah. And not only that, in this third quarter of the draw are some of the worst floaters out yes. there. First of all, here are the unseated players in this section. Michael Russell, Stefan Robert, Albano Olivetti. Albano jo- Olivetti! Big server Olivetti! <laughs> John Leonard Struff. Guillaume, I've never heard of that person. Guillaume Ruffin. Nah. Aliage Bedinet. Oh, you like him. I do. Florent Serra. Kenny DeShepper. Bradley Klon. Pablo Andujar. Timo DeBacher. T. Fabiano. What does T even stand for? Thomas Fabiano. <laughs> uh, Maximo Gonzalez. Jack Sock. Philip Petschner. Andre Kuznetsov. Dudi Sela. Pablo Cuevas. Andres Heidermauer. Mikhail Kukushkin. Andre Martin. Martin. Andre Martin. Roberto Bautista Agut. Tomas Bellucci. Nick Kyrgios. That's like a challenger, yeah. that section. Thankfully, thankfully, we got some pretty decent other seeds in there. Or at least some intriguing other seeds who got put in there. Ronich, Janovitz, Golbis, Tursanov has had a pretty good yeah, summer. Yeah, yeah. All in there. I think it's going to be one of those guys who makes it out. I'm hoping. If Ferrer makes it out, this will have been an unwatchable quarter. Yes. Basically, I think for entertainment purposes and for press purposes, I'm thinking of a bigger contrast in press. Press of... Golbis and David Ferrer. Exactly. Yeah. In the same match. In terms of who will be a more compelling player to talk to. Uh, Golbis Ferrer is right up there. So, obviously, we're not rooting for anybody. But just the storylines in that section. That's going to be a quarterfinal that will be the lone thing televised at that point. Like I said, like I, th- I think I've said this before on this podcast, like... We don't root for players, but we root for storylines. Yeah. And when it comes to this section, there are some good storylines, and there are some storylines that would be completely ignored, and we would prefer to, like, write about something out of this section than ignore it. Like, if, for example, if Ferrer makes it out of this section and then plays Nadal in the semis, what a waste (sighs) of a semi. My God. My God, Courtney. So who makes it out? Make a pick. I'm going Golbis. Yeah. Exciting. That may be a little bit of, like, again, rooting for storylines, uh-huh. but, like, I think that it would just be great if Golbus got out of this draw. I'm picking Ronich. That's fine. Right, his yeah. shoulder is healthy, because his shoulder, shoulder that's the question messed mark. up in yeah, Cincy. That's, that's my big, my question mark is about health. So, and Janowitz had not a great U.S. hardcourt season and, and kind of suffered some some weird losses, and I could see him losing to, like, a Pechner yeah. in the second round, or even a Tipsar. Jack Sock actually is an interesting draw to try to make a name for himself. He's always played well in New York. He's always stepped up. He made third round last year. He made second round year before that. Don't roll your eyes. They can't hear you rolling your eyes, but your eyes are, all I see is white. <laughs> Jack Sock will get Pechner, Janovitz, Tipsarovich for a spot in the thir- fourth round, and then maybe Golbis. That's winnable. Golbis isn't going to keep his head on straight that long. So, yeah, I think it's an interesting draw for Jack Sock. Let the record reflect that I'm shrugging. Yeah. I just don't think that a person who eats that much Chipotle should make the fourth round of a slam. In America, they should. Disagree. Hashtag America. Courtney, as we wrap up episode 54, what adjective do you think will describe this slam best when it's all is said and done? What sugar poba flavor, real or fictional, will this slam be when it's done? Wonky. Wonky. Copyright invented from Wonka a little bit for sugar poba, but yeah. Wonky. Yeah, why wonky? I don't know. I just have this sense that like, there's going to be weird things going on. And so like, even though I've picked Rafa to win it, and even though you know all the stats about the big four uh, on the men's side kind of dominating the slams, obviously, what is it, like 35 or 36? I don't remember. But it's not the stat. Don't quote me on that. But it's a lot. Yeah, it's like that. Yeah, it's something in the 30s of a 30. Yeah, I mean... 30 I, for 30. I, 30 for 30. And then on top of that, with the women, I mean, like I said, I 
think in the last podcast, I, even though Azarenka won Cincinnati, I, I wasn't really convinced by her form. Serena might be able to elevate it, but we'll see. I don't know. I kind of just feel like there's just a weird cloud over this over this. There's tournament. a weird vibe to the tournament. Yeah, right now. I don't know. It just doesn't feel the same way that it has in the past. And I think it's going to be a news-heavy slam. Yeah. I think it's going to be a news-heavy slam, and I think it's going to be a weird slam. Like I, we were talking about before, if we left here in two weeks with something like Burdich and Stoser, or even no a shock. even a Wozniacki no as shock. a champ, yeah, we're saying that could happen. Yeah. And if in two weeks it winds up being Serena at all, feel free to call us stupid. But we're saying we have so a I, weird feeling about this one. I picked Serena at all to win it, yeah. like if I had to put money on it. But that doesn't, like negate the fact that I just, there's just a weird vibe about this tournament. I don't really, I can't, I mean, I can't obviously put my finger on it because it's just kind of a, a sense, Yeah. I guess, but I don't think it's There's a disturbance go in the force a there's little bit. There's a disturbance in the force, and to be fair, I, ne- I didn't feel that going into Wimbledon. No. So. Maybe Bartoli just broke us. Could be. Post-Bartoli yeah. world. Post-Bartoli world, yeah. Post-Miley Cyrus world. That was really disturbing. It was unfortunate. Can we discuss, I kind of feel like I need to talk to somebody about what I saw. Talk about it. Just so you can get this off my chest so I can sleep tonight. What was Miley Cyrus doing, Courtney? She was partially naked, shoving a foam finger up her cooch, <laughs> and um, sticking her tongue out. That's what I saw. There were a lot of teddy bears, and the tongue was like, not like, ah, cutesy, here's my tongue, I'm being silly. It was like... It was aggressive. <laughs> it was aggressive. <laughs> it was aggressive. Like... You know, like, some people, like, some artists or, like, girls or whatever will, like, stick out their tongue like they're looking like a lollipop. Like, it's, like, you know, it's kind of suggested. Like, come hither tongue. Yeah, yeah. Not even come hither. It's, like, you're here tongue. <laughs> but, like, with Miley, that was just, like, no one actually sticks their tongue out like that unless you are a member of KISS. It's, like, it's sort of like she wanted to be, I'm trying to have a PC word to use here, suggestive, but she'd only ever read about it in books. <laughs> You know, she'd never actually seen a human, like, mating behavior before. And she's like, this is supposed to be seductive. Uh, and it, it was just gross. It was and it was, The whole VMAs, I make always, even when I was, like, the demo for it, always made me feel old. They just skew so stupid. And but it makes me feel always. sad. always. Like, back in the day, like, they really? were good. Yeah, for sure. Like, sure it's not just nostalgia? No, like, even in the NSYNC days, like... You know, you knew like with the with the VMAs, like up until I feel like like two thousand two thousand one or something, that like still there was always going to be a performance that came out of the VMAs that was like worth talking about. Yeah. And I feel like over the past like ten years, thirteen years, that hasn't happened. Like if anything, people just hate watch it and make fun of it, myself included. But like when I look back at like the original VMAs, like like the Justin, like not Justin, the NSYNC performance with Britney. I think I feel like that was like ninety nine maybe. Okay. And then like there was the in sync performance with the like the screens that was awesome. That was like it's gotta be me and like that whole album that was great. Like there were like legitimately like good performances. Brit with the snake. I was very disappointed to see in sync so short shifted by Justin. That was busted. It was really gross. And Justin like was doing every song he's ever done in a solo career pretty much, like all of them. And there's just not that much depth of strength there. There's a lot of kind of filler singles in there that don't hold up to the test of time. I totally agree. Whereas NSYNC does. Courtney, for our outro, what is your favorite NSYNC song? Ooh, it's gonna be me. It pretty much is. That's gonna be it for us. Have a good one, folks. We'll talk to you midway through the open. Bye-bye-bye. All that I do is not enough for you. You don't wanna lose it again. I'm not like this Baby, when you find the peace